you something. Idiot's traffic guide. to make an even bigger mess of things. Good luck. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis and at Ovnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Time for the podcast. A huge sigh. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name, of course, is Alex, joined as always by my co host and buddy Julio. Uh, I wouldn't call him my buddy right now because he just made me sit through uh, a great <laughs> movie that kind of redefined our friendship. And I, I'm, I'm mad that you held it from me for so long. Well, I think that it, it needed some build up. You know, you need 34 episodes of, of podcasting before you could tackle this honestly. If this I, is number 35, that's right. Yes. The milestone thus far. Um, for this, for this film, uh, for this milestone, we're joined by a guest, a friend of the podcast, Chaz Fisher. How are you doing today, sir? I am extremely jet-lagged and tired, having just flown in a few hours ago from Australia. But there is nothing like getting over jet lag than watching the most incredible fifth installment of a franchise. Fair enough. That uh, is just like an adrenaline shot right to the heart. Yep. <laughs> it's John Travolta injecting some uh, Bruce Willis. <laughs> so we are here today to finally tackle A Good Day to Die Hard, the 2013 uh, John Moore guided ship, starring, of course, Bruce Willis as John McClane. Now, before we get started, this was a movie that was met with Somewhat of an interesting reaction. Not everyone seemed to care for it, despite it not only being the shortest Die Hard film, which makes it easier to digest, it gets to the point right away, uh, but also the first Die Hard in IMAX. I mean, what else could you ask for? And it was a return to the R-rated version of the character. So that's basically everything that people wanted, and for some reason, they just uh, the critics didn't care for it. Uh, so it's, it's a shame. Uh, I have a collection. I had to wade through so many of these little green splotches trying to, you know, find like the best. And I, a lot of them are really like short quotes. So we'll start with uh, Richard Roper from richardroper.com who just says, what a disappointment. Joe Morgenstern. Succinct. 
<laughs> yeah, it's just like he couldn't even muster. Like uh, that's the entire review. That's not even a quote. That's the entire review. Uh, Joe Morgenstern from the Wall Street Journal says, "For anyone who remembers the Die Hard adventures at their vital and exciting best, this film feels like a near-death experience." Uh, Jason Bailey from Flavorwire says, "It is for anyone who loved the original films an abomination." Eric D. Snyder from ericdsnyder.com says, Don't let the title fool you. This should have starred Steven Seagal and gone straight to DVD. Ow. Mm. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with Steven Seagal, but... Under Siege 2 is one of my favorite action movies. It's, there's, yeah, you can pick any title on Seagal's career, and it's just like, why didn't he get an Oscar? Uh, Cameron Williams from The Popcorn Junkie says, Pushes the series deep into the trash heap. Uh... Tom Glasson from Concrete Playground gets cute and says, yippee nay Boo. Mm. <laughs> uh, this one's just for you, Alex. Greg Evans from Bloomberg News says, loud, with nothing to say, Good Day joins recent duds from Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger in a trifecta of pointless wallows in 80s action nostalgia. Uh, the last stand with Arnold was just fantastic, so I take great umbrage with that. Yeah. Uh, and finally... And let's not forget Terminator Genesis. There's... Yeah. <laughs> this uh, movie spawned who would eventually become the star of Terminator Genesis. That's true. Uh, we'll, we'll get to Jay Carney. I, I can't wait to talk about Jay Carney, how awesome he is. Uh, finally, David Kaplan from Kaplan vs. Kaplan... Uh, says, this credit goes to writer Skip Woods, whose first name suggests what you can do with this garbage. Uh, they, they, they love <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, A Good Day to Die Hard uh, begins with a news broadcast informing us that uh, Yuri Komarov, excuse me, played by Sebastian Koch, uh, is a political prisoner in Russia and that his trial is to stand tomorrow. This is all kind of unfolding in front of us. Uh, he's held in kind of a Magneto-type cell where he's playing chess <laughs> with himself. Um, basically, it's insinuated right off the bat that politician Victor Shugarin, played by Sergei something Russian, I'm not even going to try to <laughs> butcher this gentleman's name, uh, but he's a corrupt official, and Komarov has something on him. That's basically what we know right off the bat. Yeah, and it kind of, I think it's telling that as Americans, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure as an Australian, you kind of had a similar thing. It's like, it's Russia. So it's not Australia, it's not America. And we don't really know what's going on. And that's mm -hmm. because we're so self-involved usually. And that's <laughs> what the series has been up to this point. Mm -hmm. Die Hard 1 through 4 has been John McClane doing stuff in America that's, I mean, you know, I understand the popularity of the series, but it's not Dealing really Dealing with Europeans, though. Well, yeah, but it's all in his home turf. Yeah. So he's really not, he's just reacting. He plays the away game. Well, yeah. I mean, he's finally going in the offensive. And, 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 and I think it's necessary. I think that you... I can't believe it took the series this long to get to this point mm -hmm. where it acknowledges that terrorism is an international issue. It happens all over the world. And, and McLean, I mean, he's running out of time. He's getting old. If he's going to make a difference, he needs to just get out there. I mean, so, this, is definitely, this whole film could definitely be seen as a strong analogy or metaphor for... U.S. involvement in foreign exactly, politics. Exactly, exactly. That's uh, it, it, just come over and 
I mean, fuck everything up and make it really loud and yes. save the day at the end because obviously the these countries cannot deal with their own problems themselves and need our involvement. I mean, they're not they're not asking for it, but we will get involved because sometimes they're too proud to ask for our help. But yeah. I mean, my client shows up there; he's not even on any sort of official official duty, as mm-hmm. we will be reminded over and over again. He's on vacation. Yes. He, he takes, you know, he's on his own time. He's making the world a better place. And just before we get any further, I do appreciate, Chaz, how you refer to it as our. You're, you're in America, so you just assume the role, uh, you know, a noble spirit and big and so little as I will say that uh, Australia as a nation has got its head firmly up U.S. us. So we, we go wherever the U.S. goes. As you should. Yes. You follow the leader, yeah, yeah. the right leader. We, we will happily muddy international waters wherever <laughs> is required. Uh, just keep bringing Kylie Minogue and I'll be okay with that. <laughs> okay, done. So, uh, yeah, Shugarin, there's a file. He needs that. Victor needs this. And Komarov, you know, is not given to him. He's going to trial. Mm-hmm. So we cut to a nightclub scene where a really handsome, you know, some people would say a poor man's Tom Hardy, but I'm just going to say Tom Hardy's a poor man's Jai Courtney. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Jai Courtney, might as well tackle it right now, because it's, uh, this movie, yes, it is a diehard movie with John McClane at the center, but in a way it's the passing of the torch, and mm. and I couldn't think of anybody more capable of taking over the franchise as Jai Courtney. You, uh, I'm going to call it right now. He is this generation's Brando. Look at look like in just a few years he's done. He's played John McClane Jr. He played uh, John Connor, and he Kyle played Reese. Captain Kyle Reese. I'm sorry, <laughs> Kyle Reese, and he played Captain Boomerang. That's like three iconic characters in like just a handful of years. And wasn't he also in that um, Arnie movie Sabotage? He was, yeah. Or no, was it Jack Horney? Maybe I'm thinking. Of the, I think I think I'm Sam Worthington. Yeah, another Similar Australian oh, you're just, uh, you're just rugged going, export. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll tinker with this because there's a lot of Sam Worthington comparisons. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so but he shoots uh, some rando in this club, you know, uh, maybe a ro- low-ranking politician of some sort, but basically it gets Jack McClain locked up, um, mm-hmm. and he basically ex- informs, you know, Put me in that trial tomorrow, and I'll testify. And said, "Kamara, put me up to it." And he's like, "Is it true?" He says, "I don't. It doesn't matter. I'll testify under oath." Mm-hmm. So it's kind of setting the stage. Now we cut to a withered old John McClane at a shooting range doing target mm-hmm. practice, but he's still got the shot because every one of them is, <laughs> you know, landing on the bullseye. Yes, I I really appreciate it. Finally well, we don't know because we're behind the behind the target. <laughs> That's true. He yes. could be hitting anywhere on that target, <laughs> just consistently. It's right. Yeah, it's, it, it is the same spot every time. So that there's something I I really liked seeing I him. Think he might have eight. shot five times too, signifying each of the diehards hitting right on the mark. Oh, morning. good, good. And notice how there wasn't a sixth shot. So it's kind of like they knew that this was this was it. This was, this was his last movie. Uh, but yeah, I really liked seeing him as an old John McClane, finally. Mm-hmm. It's been yeah. five movies, and this is the first time that I felt the weight of all those adventures mm-hmm. he's had finally on him. I could see him withered, tired, mm-hmm. and it's like this man that he's still trying to be quippy, but he doesn't have the energy mm-hmm. that he had yeah. in the previous four movies, and that's awesome because you don't get to see that very often. The only other movie mm-hmm. that I can think of that 
had the balls to age his hero, its hero so much was uh, the last Indiana Jones movie, mm -hmm. which this one has like very interesting parallels mm -hmm. to yeah. To that yeah movie. I mean, you were talking about Jack Courtney taking over the franchise. Only Shia LaBeouf exactly. being lined up to be the next Indiana Jones is such a good torch bearing for a franchise. That is, you know, there are some parallels there. Uh, but I, I was gonna say. Uh, before we got into that first introduction of John McClane, there was a lot of uh, very sort of bright colors, lots of cross-cutting, thumping music. It felt very much like a Bourne movie. We were very much in a, you know, contemporary, quick-paced spy thriller where you didn't know what was going on. There was lots of story threads being led, um, set all at the same time, setting up this big mystery and conspiracy before John McClane is thrown into it so you felt like this intricate web being spun on behalf of they it wasn't it, as you said it was only a matter of time before the Die Hard franchise got here and the the Die Hard franchise has been going like ever increasingly in scope and it's it only a matter of time before right. it evolved into something like you know the European spy thriller yes I I, I totally see it I mean you can uh, I think it's interesting that the that's why they keep changing directors. You don't have the same director stick around. It's just you need someone else to uh, to just take the story to the next level. And John Moore's career, I mean, that just points him as like the guy that you would go to to take it internationally. So John gets basically the lowdown from some person with the CIA. Uh, explained to him, you know, what he had a he had a badge. I think he was a cop, wasn't he? A cop. The they happened to have a Russian. Him police file he it's somebody that's giving him information that he shouldn't have i mean that's yeah. okay. that's for yep. sure yep. so he basically gives him the breakdown of what's going on and at this point we learn that jack is john's son and that he is to go over and you know he knows he's going to be a part of this trial so ramona flowers takes uh john mcclain to the airport drops him off says be safe and says you know gives the telling line of you know try not to make things worse than they already are yeah it was a very nice like handover from movie four to movie five to have his daughter uh, whom we didn't know existed before movie number four. Uh, oh, I guess we see them as little kids, right? Do yeah. we ever see them as little kids? Yeah. But she is basically, she becomes part of the story in movie number four. And now well, in this one. the baton and then Jai Courtney's just waiting there for the handoff. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and this it, is the metaphoric uh, doing of so. Yeah. And it's the extension of John McClane as a character, whereas the first two movies was John McClane as the husband, or even the third movie, actually, because it ends with him calling Holly and trying to, to make amends, and now as he's aged, it's become much more about John McClane as the father. Like I said, he's running out of time. He he needs to make sure there's somebody to carry on the legacy. So I mean, it will be number six. Will be John McClane as a grandfather. There is no doubt. It better be. I mean, I really hope we get there. Uh, it's a shame that the the critics shunned this one because I think that that gave him cold feet about going forward. But you never know. I mean, you know. Once upon a time, they said no more Indiana Jones movies, and we had that one. And, and the same happened to Fast and Furious franchise. That's true. We have one more coming up soon. I can and totally see it being about a baby, his <laughs> grandchild. Look who's dying hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I could definitely see that in the future. So John, John McClane makes his way to Moscow. He's landed. He gets uh, in a taxi, and we kind of get the cute... Um, American thinks he can kind of uh, culturally appropriate himself, mm -hmm. and the taxi driver just sees mm -hmm. right through it. And he's like, "You're an American," and basically, uh, it's kind of a cute scene, and also, but it represents kind of what you were talking about, Chaz, that America dominates everywhere because this guy just starts singing Frank Sinatra, <laughs> and 
You know, mm. he, he knows who's number one. Yeah, I think it's also important to have that one scene with the funny cab driver because he's like, okay, here's a Russian that is not a crook. The, the rest of the movie is going to paint... only one. Right. Mm. This movie is going to paint a very damning picture of Russia, and deservedly so. I mean, that's... <laughs> the only thing that was missing from here is like Putin being behind everything. But, uh, but here, it, it's kind of like Trump a reminder. cheering him on. Right. This is a few Putin years before the, the rise of Trump. <laughs> Ed Harris. Just yeah. I think this is, this is... It's a nice bit of nostalgia because, you know, when he's in the shooting range, you see Obama in the background. So yeah. you, you're firmly establishing that this is before the Trump years. And, and who knows if Die Hard Six ever happens, and it happens, you know, it's set in the Trump presidency, then that's that would be amazing. I can only imagine burnt buildings, ash, <laughs> post-apocalyptic America, and John just running but this, around. This this scene, it is actually a cute scene where it does show John McClane being a fish out of water. I mean, that's one of the key attributes of the franchise is right. that John McClane is constantly completely out of his depth and this time it's not just logistically or by arms it's culturally as well that he's right he, know, he can't even speak the language yeah, yeah. his zingers are no good here. <laughs> so the trial is at hand we get unloaded out of the police cavalcade is Komarov and as well uh, Jack McLean is there they're loaded into kind of these little uh, chambers individualized chambers in the middle of the courtroom they have breathing holes it's kind of like a penalty box at a hockey game <laughs> Um, and they're just sitting there, tensions mounting, tensions building. It's interwoven with these slow motion shots of, you know, um, basically the equivalent of a Russian SWAT team or tactical unit scanning cars on the outside for bombs. When we get this big, you know, um, line of black cars pulling up, and we don't know too much about who's in them, but we know they're dressed, ready to go for battle, and they mean business. Yeah. Once again, we're the Americans. We're out of there. We're the outsiders. So we we're just we can only guess. But then we are introduced to my favorite character in the movie, uh, Alec. Alec, whom I on my on my notes I have him as Russian Xander from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm -hmm. uh, nice. But yeah, he he steals the movie. Uh, he is mm -hmm. because John McClane is old and and he just can't quite keep up with like the zingers. I think that. Russian Xander takes over, and he's the one with the quips. And, you know, he's, he's playing, he, he's in the home team. He, he's, you know, it's his territory. Of, uh, Sam Rockwell and Charlie's Angels vibes mm. from this guy. That too, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he's obviously the head henchman here for uh, Sugar, and they set off this big series of bombs, and they're cars that are occupied by their own men. They don't care. Blow it up. Badass. Blows <laughs> a, a big flaming crater, as Chief Wiggum would say, into the side of the courthouse. Um <laughs> Causes chaos, pandemonium, but Jack in all of this keeps a calm head and he knows what's going on and he takes uh, Komarov off with him and they kind of disappear into the abyss temporarily <laughs> while Alec and his men come in looking for him. It's, it's pandemonium. It's, you you got to keep up. Yeah, and it's just, so this sets off what must be a 10, 15 minute like action sequence mm -hmm. that it just doesn't stop uh, and along the way much we'll like have America. <laughs> much like once you're in you're all in <laughs> it's just uh uh Jai Corny trying to get uh his Russian guy out of there but then of course he runs into his dad how it, chaotic the scene is is they're in their jumpers that the um law enforcement put them in basically <laughs> you know their chain breaking clothing they're still handcuffed they're walking down the street, still handcuffed, in their jumpers, 
and multiple police cars are driving by them. That's how chaotic it is. They're just looking past <laughs> these criminals on the side of the road. Well, there's explosions and, and smoke and fire and everything. So it's just, it's a diehard movie. Yeah. Up till that point, you're like, okay, there's Bruce Willis. And, and I understand that, you know, we're building up to something. But it, it's not a diehard movie until you get the action, you know, until the action kicks in. And this is when it but happens. Just before the action kicks in, when he bumps into his son, like his son almost runs him down. And they do have a wonderful sort of John McClane meeting. It is exactly as you would imagine John McClane's son greeting his father, which is absolute disgust and disdain. Yes. And he basically, John, and you know, for all his, you know, fish out of water tail here, he does prove to be the hero because it, I know it's not what happens, but the, the scene is shot to make it look like he stops the car from moving with his own. <laughs> yes. It's, I mean, the symbolism is clear. Yes. He brings a screeching halt to his son's life at this point in time. Um, but Alec and his men, they're, all they're talking about is, get the file, get the file. So it's this big elusive file that we still don't really know what the hell it is. Um, but Jack and John are reunited for the worse, I would say, because he is not excited at all to see his father. Um, this does result in, like you said, a, just an increasingly climactic action sequence and just chases on the highway all around. There's gunfire, there's blood, sugar, sex, magic. I mean, everything's going on right now. There's something special about seeing that happen in Russia. I think that we've kind of become desensitized to to awesome car chases because they always happen in America. And But suddenly when you see it happening in, in a foreign country, it adds like that an extra jolt of excitement and because, I don't know, people are screaming in a different language and, and there's just... I always I got the feeling that there was like a layer of humor that I was not getting because I am not Russian. You know what I mean? Like there was like Russian Sander was like throwing zingers like through the entire thing, and I'm like, it's not that funny. But they're all laughing. The movie was telling me that it was funny, so I, I just went with it. It was like, it was exactly. It's like it was like watching a, a foreign movie. But that it was like actually a diehard movie, and so we got and we got some John McClane zingers in there, like yeah. when he runs into the back of him and says "knock knock." <laughs> yes, yeah. That's and when uh, Ramona Flowers calls him and says, "How's Jack?" and it's a slow motion sequence <laughs> where he sees him in the car next to him. I'm looking at him right now. Yeah, mm. yeah. That's I forgot that. Yeah, there's a phone call it happened. That's like classic diehard stuff. But the, the, the John McClane as the family man is like clearly being established as the the journey for him in this in this movie and him trying to bring his family together is his mission i mean you want to talk about metaphors it's just literal hurdles are being put in front of him to get reconnected with his son yes this is a a tale of not already not only you know american involvement in foreign affairs but also just the the one of father and son well it it works on two levels because it's it is a father trying to reconnect with his son and doing everything he can to reconnect with his son but it's also america refusing to let go of like their lost son this is an american behind enemy lines and they're just you know McLean is not going to stop until he rescues his son even though he has no jurisdiction to do so so once all this pandemonium finally fucking dies down we get to the meat and potatoes of what's really going on here as uh, Jack has taken Komarov he's basically trying to extort this information from him because he is a spy for the CIA and they're basically saying you know give us what we need on Shagarin and we'll get you out of Russia um, Kamarov says, yeah, okay, I'll do that, but we need to get my daughter first. Um, and basically helping them plan the escape. They're in this little safe house hideaway, which is clearly not, there's windows everywhere. So it's a rookie mistake on this end, but that's really what separates Jack from John. Cause John can see this coming from a mile away. Yeah. He's a, uh, he may be the old dog, but he's got the old tricks that work. 
Yeah, I, I think it's just Jack is just like he's a millennial, you know. He's 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 had it too easy so far. He had he's had the cushy CIA training, and whereas like John, he's like he's from the streets, so he can he can read the situation many times during this movie. He's barefoot over broken glass. Exactly. He's so he even when he doesn't speak Jack the language. Chai latte. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but it does also set up this uh, sense of each one vying for each other's respect right at this point. Oh, so, yeah. So Jai, as you know, kind of demands his father's respect, like I'm, a, I'm in the CIA and his father denying it to him and his father constantly trying to undermine, you know, him as a, you know, uh, any kind of authority on anything. Yeah, one of the great pleasures of this movie is just watching that relationship evolve and go from being completely antagonistic to them slowly growing disrespect for each other. Uh, he, uh, John McLean learns to see his son as an adult that actually has some value and his son learns to respect him as a father and all it takes is the destruction of like half of Russia for them to get there. Yeah, Moscow is pretty much burnt to the ground here. Um, this does lead, you know, uh, the ginger from Dazed and Confused is there to help him out and he was basically, had to be on set for just four hours because they get him in, he gets the lines out, and he gets shot in the head. Three of those hours were just them applying the makeup of the gunshot. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and Komarov's shot in the arm. Now, it's not a fatal wound, but he is bleeding at a rapid pace. He seems very surprised by his gunshot. He just sort of sit, stands there looking at it for quite some time before... Or it doesn't react at all, really. Yeah, I think that those those big Russia spies, they're not used to getting shot. So it's like, oh, this is what happens? It's, <laughs> it's um, Jack Nicholson and The Departed where you get shot at the end and you're just looking at it. Uh, <laughs> shit. Uh, so they're off to get Komarov's daughter. Um, and basically the rendezvous point, it looks to be some kind of old abandoned hotel. or uh, I'm not sure what it is. but They're chandeliers. The reason we're reuniting at this location is because Komarov knows that the key to the file is hidden in this this place. So they're, you know, coming up with all these different ideas and uh, different types of scenarios of how to get into the building undetected where we just see John, you know, old dog, old tricks. He just pays off one of the laundry chute guys and he gives them his key card and they get into the building right away. That's uh, American resourcefulness. Sometimes I think that... Uh, and also arrogance. Money mm, can buy anything. Well, the, again, American, <laughs> American dollars. I'm pretty sure he paid them in American dollars. So that's, that's just... Uh, uh, Andrew Hamilton, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, uh, have you seen and, Eurotrip? Uh, a, I have, it's but a it's fantastic been, movie. It, it's been to, quite some time. Yeah. The, that's the one where the snake's involved. Yeah, like the snake. Oh, the, but the there's back a, in the in the. That's road trip. Road trip. Oh no no no! Uh, Euro trip uh, is uh, they're teenagers and they're going around Europe. But there's this awesome trip. scene. It was at the height of the Tom, Tom Green experiment. Yeah, no Euro trip. There's a moment where they're like they're stuck in some European country, and then they realize that they have maybe like five dollars between all of them. But that money is like they're millionaires there. So they, they go into a hotel and they tip some guy like a quarter. And the guy's like, quarter, I quit. And he walks out. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's a great movie that we should do someday. Because I'm sure that it's pretty low on the tomato meter. But it's a double feature, Euro and Road Trip. <laughs> but as if it's not enough that John has undermined his son, you then have Komarov commenting on it in yes. the lift on the yes. way up saying, you know, that was a very smart move 
Yeah, which prompts uh, his son to go like, well, I could have done it. it, it it's just, mm. you know, those Russians like always making things worse. Yeah. Uh, so they get to this, it, it looks to be a banquet hall in whatever building they're in. And we come across uh, Irina, who is Komarov's daughter. Um, and Komarov goes over, it looks like an old radiator, but whatever, this is where the key to the file has been hidden. So he reaches in there to get it. All the while, while this is going on, John knows there's trouble afoot. He can smell it. Nobody else is suspecting anything, but he can tell there's something wrong. This is not his first rodeo. Quite literally, it is his fifth. <laughs> yes. So he's been here before. It is a rodeo because at some point, like one of the Russians goes like, "I hate cowboys," and he gives him like a look. All this movie is missing is Bruce Willis in a cowboy hat at some point in time. <laughs> not sure where he would locate one in Moscow, but the thought is there. I'm sure that cab driver could have brought one over. Yeah. Exactly. He probably had one. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a setup. This leads to um, a big you know, shootout. There, there's a helicopter that Jack sees, and he pieces it together also. He's like, oh, shit, they're about to set us up. So Alec and all the henchmen come in. They put zip ties on Jack and John. Um, Komarov is taken hostage by his own daughter, and then this big chopper comes up, takes them away. Um, but not before, you know... Alec gets, you know, what endeared him to you, his scene in the film here. I mean, I already liked him, but this is the moment where he just shines. This is the moment where he became the Ethan Embry of the of the movie. Where uh, I don't know if you've seen Empire Records. Oh, yes. Okay, so... <laughs> so <laughs> Ethan Embry in that movie... He Go, just, Mark! <laughs> he goes for it, right? So Ethan Embry set out to make a mark... Uh, yes, uh, the film industry. He he knew that this could have been like his last chance, his one and only chance to make an impression. So Ethan Embry in that movie, he's going for it every second. He's like mm -hmm. acting the hell out of every beat <laughs> in that script. And I think that uh, uh, Russian Sander here, he does the same thing, and he gets the spotlight on him in this moment where he has the two McLeans tied down at his mercy. Whilst eating a carrot. Yes, mm -hmm. he's eating a carrot, and then he tap dances. <laughs> It's amazing. It comes out of nowhere, and I just love this movie for it. Even if there was nothing else in this movie that put it above all the other four diehards, this would be the scene that would make it just get to the top. And it was Russian Zander who had the arguably the best line in the whole film during that earlier epic car chase where they try to shoot a missile at uh, John McClane, and he misses. And Russian Zander says, You missed! Interesting choice! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, I'm telling you, Russian humor, I just don't get it, but I'll laugh with it. So, the, I mean, another important thing to note there is that it's it's Kamarov's daughter who betrays him in this scene. Yeah, and it's not, I don't think it's the first big twist, because I guess the first big twist was that the reveal that uh, John's son is CIA. Mm -hmm. And then we get another big twist when it turns out that uh, Kamarov's daughter is not mm -hmm. she's working with Russian Sander and everybody else, but it's reinforcing and providing a mirror image to John and Jack, right? Because now it turns out, oh, well, you know, she has her own father at gunpoint, mm -hmm. so but whatever the case, it just goes to prove how damn important these documents are that everyone's trying to get their mitts on. Um, Chagrin's basically invested his entire life into this, so the henchmen just beat the ever living shit out of Jack and John until. Uh, Jack has a knife gun, which is just about the most badass thing that has ever been invented. Uh, he's able to bust that out and saw off his zip ties. And this was, you know, 
We actually had a bit of trouble figuring this out, but I think John McClane's just such a badass. He didn't need anything. He just breaks out of the zip tie. He's like Batman. It's, mm-hmm. Every now and then, Batman will do something that defies logic, but the but answer is... flaming bat symbol on the <laughs> Gotham Bridge. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. But then you're like, well, you know how... He's Batman. That's that's why. That's how it happened. And here... Somehow get from the Middle East to Gotham without any money or anything. He's Batman. He yeah. has contacts everywhere. And here, John McClane, he has been in worse situations. Mm-hmm. Of course, he was going to get out of this one. Mm-hmm. Being zip-tied, that has nothing... You know, you don't even need to show it on camera. You just know it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I was more curious about how his son was going to fare. So I'm glad that they, they showed us the knife and all that stuff you i needed to see how his son got out of that situation but as far as john mcclain senior i did i wasn't worried i knew that he would just prevail you, you watch it as an audience member knowing that john could take control at any point if he wanted to but he allows his son to field this one mm, right he yeah. allows him to kind of prove his worth and as you would imagine once those zip ties are broken all hell breaks loose it's uh you know it's just a, a downpour of gunfire and blood and expletives um they actually shoot out the stained glass ceiling of the building which is actually a pretty cool visual however uh Kamara's taken off in a chopper so you know for now we've hit a standstill um which does lead to a good heart-to-heart between the two as um i believe it's at this point uh jai courtney jack has uh, a bolt or some sort of shrapnel yeah, like something lodged in we here. call it rear rod in australia i don't know what you guys call it here <laughs> That's what you call it. We just well, it's great big, like, sort of steel rods that you put into concrete when you're making foundations it and had pillars. A threading on it yeah, right. It looked yeah. like a, a screw of some sort, but yeah, not not mm-hmm. fun. <laughs> <laughs> we call it pain. <laughs> it's, um, but during all this, we get the big exposition of the film, where Jack finally explains to John what's what's causing all this, as J.J. Dillon would say to Ric Flair back in the day. Um, what happens here is that we find out that uh, <laughs> Shagarin and um, Komarov. Komarov caused Chernobyl. Yeah, that's uh, uh, they used to have. So they, they, I was. It was so mind blowing that I'm not even sure. Like I, I got all of that because I. But so they used to like sell drugs. They had like a drug dealing business, right? They had basically a racket. And they were selling uranium. And uranium. They, and they apparently took so much. They got greedy. The they got greedy and they caused like, They started small with things and then basically upgraded the WMD's uranium mm-hmm. and got sloppy with it and took in too much. And there was eventually um, a breach and a compromise. <laughs> now, so this firmly puts us into the alternate history. Uh, this is where, you know, you know, it's like, so we know that, you know, it, because in the real world, this didn't happen. That's not how Chernobyl happened. <laughs> Inglorious Bastards has nothing on this. <laughs> right. So this is a parallel reality in which still Obama is president because we saw that picture mm-hmm. earlier in the movie. So it's not that different from, you know, current reality. It's not like, you know, the Nazis won World War II or something. But it, I think that it gives us a lot of freedom when it comes to future diehard movies. Because once you've established that in this world... Chernobyl was caused by, you know, two Russian uranium dealers, then the sky's the limit. You can just do whatever. It's kind of like when Tarantino killed Hitler in uh, Inglorious Bastards. It's like, you can, now you can, anything can happen. So, or basically the whole opening montage of Watchmen. The comedian kills JFK. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's like mm-hmm. anything can happen. The next, the next diehard could be on, like, Saturn, mm-hmm. you know, because for all you know, the Americans had, you know, gone on the space race all the way to the end of the solar system. Mm-hmm. Guy Courtney knew it the whole time. 
Yes. <laughs> so he knows that Shagarin is the one that basically caused Chernobyl. Komarov knows that, and he has the documentation, the file to prove it. And that's what this big elusive file is. And it is in Chernobyl. So without really knowing that the plan of uh, Komarov's daughter and Alec is to go to Chernobyl, John and Jack, I think they know it in their heart of hearts because they just kind of brave it because they don't know for certainty that's where they're going, but they just head out there anyway. Mm -hmm. They're McLean's. The same thing because he's Batman, because he's John McLean. He can tell. He, just like he could tell that there was something wrong in that scene earlier where he could sense that they were about to be betrayed by, by uh, the daughter. Here, he kind of knows bad guys. That's, they're, always, they're pretty simple-minded. Where would you hide uh, key information about Chernobyl? In Chernobyl. Yeah. So that's why they go there. And they also, in that little heart-to-heart, -heart, have some pretty epic lines about how John McLean just kills all the scumbags. And that's what he does. He is proud of it. Yeah. He is. I, I am glad that it's acknowledged too, mm. because I mean, come on, I, like, there's no way. Look at, look at current America. I mean, you know, there's like every time a cop kills someone, there's like a big news story, and so there's no way that that Bruce Willis, John McClane, could get away with all the people he kills in the last four diehards without mm -hmm. it being something that needs to be talked about. Yeah. So I'm glad that it's it finally explained here that it's like, well, yeah, I do it. And it's because I have to do it. After he's filled out his 400th <laughs> report, <laughs> he was like, listen, this is what we do. And I'm like, okay, good. We're on the same page, right? I mean... So we we know that it, it weighs on him. It weighs on his conscience. I think that it's just that he is he's, he's aware of it. His place right. Yeah. He he knows this is what he does, and you know there's no mm. more to it. And like America, it's not that America wants to get involved in foreign politics. It's just that no one else is going to do it. We have to. Yeah. I think if you, if you have the biggest gun, it's your responsibility. With great power comes great mm -hmm. responsibility, and that's that's America. That's John McClane. So they go to Chernobyl to save the day, and while they're getting strapped up and armed, you know, uh, John just rocking it old school, no real Kevlar or anything like that, just gets a big <laughs> shotgun. And uh, Chaz pointed out to me here that Jack has easily the most badass moment of the film. <laughs> he puts on a bulletproof vest that is strapped with grenades on the outside, so he is inviting <laughs> to be shot. It doesn't even matter if you know if it reaches the Kevlar because it's just going to blow him up anyway. It's, you know, uh, when you would play Red Faction on the PlayStation 2, and the one guy would be the sacrificial land that you strap all the detonation bombs to, and he runs in, and then you blow him up. I mean, he's clearly still trying to impress his father. Yes. That's, this is, that's just like an undercurrent theme that's in the movie. That's a literal pissing contest. He just straps it up, <laughs> what you got, old man? Um, so, Alec, and, you know, they open up the big vault where the, the ominous file is, and they have to go in and... They have some kind of torches that somehow lower the radiation level because uh, the radiation is pooled into this safe that they're going into. Um, we were trying to figure out the logistics of this, but you know, it was all all the radioactivity in Chernobyl had somehow made its way and congregated and procreated and reproduced in this vault. I I love learning new things. I've I've never been to <laughs> I've never been to Russia, never been to Chernobyl, so it was just it was good. I like it when an action movie actually teaches me stuff. Science, like the A team, you can fly a tank. Yes, you know that. Um, well, here comes you know the big final swerve of the film is that the Komarovs have been in it this whole time, and you know um, Yuri takes out a gun, shoots Alec in the head, you know, and. and 
we hardly knew ye. I know. Mm. I was I was hoping for a big showdown between him and and either of the McLeans before yeah. the end came, but no, he gets taken out. Who, and, you who's know, the diehard henchman? Is it Lars, the one who get the original? In the first one, the first that's one? what I was expecting. Right, there right. was going to be some major yeah. henchman. John but they're smart. Him. I mean, you know, they played against our expectations. Yeah, they yeah. they knew that that's what we wanted, so instead they have him killed. And his final line, Alex, is something along, is that the file and then Gunn comes in from stage left mm-hmm. and shoots him in the head. So Irina and Yuri Komarov were in this together the whole time. Um, so the big file, it turns out, is just a bunch of, a shit ton of uranium that's hidden in there still. So they're starting to bogart that, load it up. They're taking it in. Alex's phone gets a ring, and it's Shagarin on the other line saying, is it done? Yuri answers it and um, has set him up all the way on the other side of the country where his masseuse comes in. And, you know, it's kind of like um, random task in Austin Powers. He just comes up behind him and starts choking him and snaps his neck. So everything is going according to plan for him. Yeah, we're just like closing the loops because we're heading mm-hmm. into the big third act showdown. So uh, the only, I guess, the only loose... Uh, uh, Cannon out there was that guy, and we just got rid of him with a simple phone call. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty sexy too, I think, mm-hmm. in a movie that He's hasn't been dripping with sweat. He it has was... his, his white chest hair. Yeah, uh, it, it Delectable. was just. It was, I mean, in a movie that's very concerned with age, where his, his protagonist is showing its age mm-hmm. all throughout. It was good to see one of the bad guys also just kind of not be ashamed mm-hmm. of the fact that he's growing old. He was he was sagging mm-hmm. a little. He was getting that massage, and mm-hmm. then and then he gets killed. But to, to balance that off, in the what looked to be freezing Ukrainian snow, there was one henchman who was not wearing a shirt. That right? was Zangief from Street Fighter 2. Yeah. Uh-huh. Was he, he was tatted up. <laughs> he, he was ready to rock and roll. Um, His now, tats kept him warm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Extra coating. Now, Irina and um, bald tattoo man Zangief, they run off. They're loading up this giant, you know, it made me channel Metal Gear Solid. I looked at it like Solid Snake and said, high and D. They're loading up this airplane with the uranium and all the information they have there, um, which is basically just a shit ton of weapons. John and Jack corner uh, Yuri in the safe, and they begin to piece it together. Uh, they find that Alec is dead, and they're, they're starting to figure it out here. And uh, They figure out something that even, even I guess, McLean knew. Deep down, McLean Sr. and McLean Jr. is about to learn, which is just something that it's it just one of the ultimate messages of the movie. Do not trust Russia. Like all these Russians have been lying to them from the beginning. Even when they were double crossing themselves, you know, they were still it wasn't even a true betrayal. It was a it was a fake betrayal because the real betrayal was coming. So that's I, I was kind of surprised that they didn't catch on earlier, but I guess the point is that young McLean had to learn exactly. the hard way. He watched it unfold and he figures it out while John holds him by his throat mm-hmm. up against, you know, one of the walls in the safe and Jack is, you know, kind of piecing it together for himself. It's at this point, Yuri kind of has his Samuel Jackson moment from Django where he drops the coughing and like the timidness. <laughs> and, you know, he, he just says, you know, I counted four shots, motherfucker, and looks at him in the eyes. <laughs> you know, he's been in it the whole time. He stops his coughing and his selling of his arm and all this shit. And it's, Basically, he wins, and then they figure out mm. there was no file. You're just here to get all this uranium, mm. and he basically explains, yeah, you can't, even if you kill me, that all this shit's about to be gone anyway. Right. So they've been manipulated. The entire movie was for nothing, except you know, helping young McLean learn. 
Mm. I mean, you can make the argument even at this point as we head into the the final showdown. John knew all of this, and he just kind of guided his son through it, not only for him to learn, but to help them grow as a father-son. Mm. I mean, there's yeah, nothing, nothing absolutely. will bond a father and a son like going through this shit. Like going into Chernobyl <laughs> without any type of hazmat suit on, despite every other character there needing it. It's just, it builds a bond mm. while shortening one as well. <laughs> well, you know, they can have chemo together <laughs> once they come back to the States. So John takes off after the chopper. Jack takes off after Yuri. They fight their way up onto the ceiling of uh, this building that they're at. Uh, was it a former bank? I was trying to figure out exactly what it was because there's like a swimming pool in the basement and it's... Um, Those kind of Russian vaults. banks with their yeah. swimming pools. I, I'm, I'm not too entirely sure, but you know, <laughs> Chernobyl was a, just a, a big cavalcade and microcosm of different things there. So it could have been just a big amalgamation of buildings that they had this battle on. But they're on the rooftop, um, Jack and... Yuri are fighting it out. John makes his way into the plane. He kills one guard, opens the door, and then he gets into a scuffle with Irina. And he's trying to get the um, the vehicle they have in there. It's like a big Jeep. Yeah, it looks like a Russian Jeep. Yeah. And he drives it out. It's attached by a chain. So his plan is to just make it go all over the place and causing to weigh down the chopper. Um, during all this, Jack and Yuri are there at this point engaging in basically a fist fight. And he says, you know, your dad would be proud. Too bad he won't be around to see you get a promotion. And much like his dad, he says, well, neither will you. And throws him into the rotating blades mm-hmm. of the helicopter. Yeah. Once again, the movie plays with our expectations because in the first Die Hard, you, you know, uh, Alan Rickman falls in slow motion and you see him disappear all the mm-hmm. way down. But here, uh, Russian bad guy starts falling in slow motion and then he gets sliced by the helicopter plane. <laughs> you did not see that coming. That is like pretty gory and pretty amazing. It was a moment where we all had a very satisfied. Oh yeah, chuckle. we all yeah. we all reacted. Yeah, it was it was the payoff because that guy deserved what he got. <laughs> um, the plane kind of fishtails and it hurls John off, and he goes flying through a window that's parallel to where he was. And so he has a hard landing, but fortunately he isn't like hurled to his death or anything like that. Because he's John McClane. Yes. And Jack somehow gets to where he is fairly quickly. Um, and basically, at this point, Irina is going to fly the chopper at them, correct? Right. She's seen her father die kind of Horrible. by her hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she was the one piloting the chopper. Uh, and she she has nothing to lose, so she's just going to fly the chopper into the two McLeans in the building. And as she's coming in, they kind of exit stage left, jump out. And in the last act of defiance, John flips him the bird on the way down. Classic America. That's just uh, in slow motion. You just see him and you're like, fuck yeah, that's what any American would do. We we have a bigger dick than you is what he's telling them. <laughs> and then they fall through a glass ceiling into the aforementioned swimming pool. While this gigantic chopper falls, explodes, shoots shrapnel, and just debris everywhere. It explodes and explodes and explodes. We've had a fair share of explosions throughout the movie, but this is just epic. It just goes on. It's like 4th of July in Russia, which is very... Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure $85 million of the $90 million budget was spent on explosions. <laughs> they look great. Worth every penny. Yes. And the other $5 million was on the closing credits song. <laughs> true stones ain't cheap um so after this monstrous explosion jai courtney surfaces from the pool and he's you know john john and he keeps going under to try to find him 
Then he comes back up, and it's the moment we've all waited for. He calls him Dad. He screams out, Dad! And the whole time, John McClane was sitting on the side of the pool. It, 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 it's this point you realize he's led him this far. He's going to make him pay you know, for it. He's going to make him say thank you by making him call him Dad. It, it works. Uh, and, and even though he denies it later, uh, once they're reunited, he's like, I didn't call you dad. You're just old and you can't hear it. But th- it's still, they both know it happened. And you can see that that's, we finally come to a point where they both respect each other. All is and forgiven. All is forgiven. They even talk about, he calls himself a McLean mm. and they have a talk about how like, well, he's McLean Jr. And that means that. Uh, Bruce Willis is McLean Senior, and he's fine with that. It's this is a man accepting that he's old, yes. and that he's he's he might be about to just completely outgrow this nonsense from the past five movies. It's time to uh, just move on because he recognizes that his son can take care of it. And it's a boy not only accepting that he's become a man, but he's accepting his place in life. Right, he's a McLean, so that's that's this is what he does. He's gonna be uh, killing scumbags all over <laughs> the world. <laughs> And the both of them get patched up, get shipped right back to the greatest country in the world, and Ramona Flowers is waiting for him on the tarmac there and comes out and greets him. They get a nice, cozy little personal jet that flies them back to the United States. They get a nice uh, slow-mo walk. Mm-hmm. Just that it just promises such an awesome movie to follow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just Team McLean at this mm-hmm. point. You know, movie number four built up the daughter. Movie number five builds up the son. Movie number six, it just has to be the three of them and the and grandkids. Where there's alternate reality now, so there's like the options are limitless. Mm. They can go anywhere. They can go to, uh, you know, I, I was going to say Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> and go to the outback. Where, See like, there's John a... <laughs> John McClane versus Mick Dundee. <laughs> yes. I mean, he's still alive. He's probably as old as Bruce Willis. So, but the torch was passed here. You know, it took John to execute this mission but he did it in proving that jack can do it as well he showed him that he can you know take the baton and run with it well here's the thing i don't think there's any indication that the news like the media would ever know what happened here how many you know countless american heroes working undercover taking care of business overseas and you never hear about it you know, unless something goes wrong. But John McClane is like basically telling you the story of what happens when things go right when America does what they, what America does best, which is take care of business. TCB. Yep. You never you never even know about it. Okay. <laughs> Are we ready for real talk? Yes. Just let me get a beer. My <laughs> God, real talk. You American? Yeah. American. New York. Big Apple. I want to wake up in a city that never sleeps. Yeah, that's it. Never sleeps. Frank Sinatra, chairman of the board. That's right. Chairman. Yeah. You, you, you sing good. This little town blues I'm melting away. Yes, I sing. I sing mm. all the time. Yeah. King of the hill, top of a wall, huh? Heap. Top of the heap. <laughs> all right, all right. Talk all right, you. we are on Real Talk. Okay, Real Talk. Uh. 
Day to Die Hard. Now, as you know, any faithful listener of the Contrarians would know, I've been turning this down for quite some time. Um, our friend Chaz over here um, made quite a long travel, and as being a guest on our podcast, he did request we do a good Day to Die Hard, so that's how it finally came to be. I actually was... requested American Hustle, but this was <laughs> the right. better option. That's right. This, that was the compromise. <laughs> that's right. So... Uh, a Good Day to Die Hard, released on February 14th, 2013. It was a Valentine's Day movie. Um, <laughs> totally see it. Yeah, that's A budget of an estimated $92 million for a box office of, of course, over $304 million. Um, again, like I mentioned in the first part, it's the shortest Die Hard, which paid dividends for us here this evening. Um, 14% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, Julio, uh, there are people that liked it. <laughs> yes, uh... I, I don't understand. But here, uh, Chris Wagner from Dallas Morning News says, It's all more than a little silly, but Willis's pres- presence at least provides undercurrents of easy jocularity. What? Like, you can use what big words. What movie you watching? <laughs> uh, Robert Roughton from Laramie Movie Scope says, There is plenty of action in this film, but the characters are a bit sketchy. There is so much backstabbing and double-crossing that you tend to lose patience with the story. That is a positive review. <laughs> it, it has. Uh, Mark R. Leeper from Mark Leeper's Reviews says, has charm and promises more from the new filmmaker. It's a, he wasn't a new filmmaker. No. By the, yeah. That's... He fucking did Behind Enemy Lines 12 years mm. prior. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Carr from Fat Guys at the Movies says, it was exactly what I expected from a fifth installment of a 25-year-old franchise that was released in February when all the other films mm. dropped in the summer. That so this is a good review? <laughs> yes. He, I guess he expected a lot. He expected <laughs> Deadpool. <laughs> he knew he was ahead of, of his time. Uh Brian Henry Martin from UTV says, Many critics have already determined that this Die Hard is a bad day at the cinema. For me, like so many modern action films, if you leave your brain at the door, you may leave Russia with love. Do you know what the tagline for this movie was? No. yippee ki Mother Russia. <laughs> I did know that. I just remember mm. that. Uh, oh, then Clint O'Connor from Cleveland Plain Dealer says... Action junkies' delight, blazing bullets, car crashes, perpetual motion. What? You were expecting dialogue and plot? These are like Trump apologizes. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, it sucked, but it was, it was it locker, locker room, room talk. talk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, finally, Christopher Tukey from Daily Mail UK. On any serious level, it's deplorable. But it's so macho a vision of old Speaking age of that it that it becomes quaintly enjoyable. All right, so we'll get in, in just a moment. Uh, John Moore directed this, uh, of aforementioned behind Enemy Lines fame. Also directed Max Payne, as you brilliantly put, was building a nice little career for himself. When he did Max Payne, um, written by Skip Woods, who his writing talents have appeared on the podcast previously with uh, the A Team. Does it hurt? <laughs> Okay, he wrote this solo. <laughs> Joe Carnahan wrote like there were three writers on the A team. The incomparable Joe Carnahan was one of them. So, he, so, so, so you're throwing Skip under the bus. Have any of you seen Joe Carnahan? He live tweeted watching this movie. Really, and it was amazing. <laughs> Just like he ended saying, "I'm friends with the guys who made this, and I'm going to go around to their house and make them explain to me why." <laughs> um, so. 
Yeah, just a few things to go into here. The the it, interesting tidbits I did find. Um, so uh, Noah Murrow was originally to direct this, but he committed to 300 Rise of an Empire uh, for 2014. Allegedly a better career choice. <laughs> so it prevented him from working on it. Here's where it gets interesting. Other directors considered included Joe Cornish, Justin Lin, and Nicholas Wendig Riffin. Oh! That would have been amazing. Yes. A Nicholas Wendig Riffin film. Die Hard. <laughs> Five. <laughs> presents Die Hard. That's what, uh, when you were talking about just the, neo, uh, the neon lights mm. and everything, putting it together in the beginning. I was just. Um, quick sidebar Have you seen The Neon Demon? No. I, I was so kind of. Meh about only God forgives. You, you were only more than meh. <laughs> <laughs> that movie was trash. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm definitely on meh. I'm not, I, not trash. Nowhere near Drive or Pusher or. So if you ever get around to Bronson. seeing Neon Demon, you'll look at it and you'll think to yourself, that guy made Drive, <laughs> and now he's here. But yeah, that would have been pretty interesting. Him directing Die Hard, and then as I kind of mentioned, there were many other potential options for the character of Jack. Uh, Aaron Paul, Liam Hemsworth, uh, James Bridgedale, Paul Walker, Ben Foster. Uh, Aaron Paul would have been an interesting choice. Yeah. Stephen R. McQueen, Paul Dano, and oh. uh, Milo Ven- Ventimiglia uh, were originally rumored for the role before the latest creation from the Sam Worthington compound. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Good Day to Die Hard, one of only two movies I have ever walked out of in my life, the other being Grown Ups, as I had mentioned going into this. <laughs> so, I literally did not know that the bad guy caused Chernobyl. <laughs> the movie. So, it made me regret not sitting all the way through it. Uh, that was your glory moment, wasn't it? Yes, that was incredible. <laughs> uh, so, let's start with positives. What good happened in this film? Uh, it's short. I think that that is actually good. It's a good thing. Uh, uh, that was it doesn't add, well. It does outside as well. <laughs> uh, then its pacing creates it to do that. I I was kind of serious in Contrarian's Corner when I mentioned that it was kind of cool to see an old John McClane. Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't do really anything with it because he looks old and he kind of walks a little slower. Mm-hmm. But but he's still he's such a. There's not like Lethal Weapon Four where they actually right. like really yeah, no, struggle here, to do exactly. Stuff There's person. no struggle here. He's still a badass. He mm. gets hurt. He doesn't get hurt. So so it's almost like what's the point? But yeah. the promise of seeing uh, an old John McClane finding him that maybe mm. well I can't do this on my own anymore. Mm. It's a yeah. good thing that my son can pick up the slack that would have been cool but you know of course the movie doesn't go anywhere with it it's just uh but the idea the like the germ of the idea of an old john mclean is there i think there's lots of things like that where there's lots of little seeds that could have actually grown into a good movie like clearly they were set in russia i assume for budgetary purposes (laughs) and uh, no joke there but the idea of John McClane going on an actual holiday, not what he kept saying that he was on holiday, but actually going on holiday to, to catch up with his son and getting roped up into some kind of international intrigue, that I could have got on board as a film. So that is probably the most egregious trope of the film, <laughs> how he continuously says he's on vacation despite the audience knowing full well he was sent there on a goddamn mission. Uh, well, I think he sent himself. They didn't yeah. send him on the mission. But it's not right? a holiday. It's not like, oh, my son's in, in prison for, right. or about to get tried for murder. It's I'll go and visit him and then I'll just swing back via Ibiza, you know. 
Just round out that trip. Yeah, it's definitely not a vacation unless John McClane has been on the job for so long that he just he doesn't even remember what a vacation is like. But I thought like dealing with John McClane growing old, dealing with John McClane in a foreign country, they should have made much more of that. Like he the you know, the the trope of the American obnoxious tourist overseas with it being John McClane could have been so hilarious and played up John McClane dealing with his son. Like I could imagine that for John McClane's masculinity, the respect of his son could have been super important. And one of the things I felt they really dropped here is his son grows to respect him, but he doesn't change at all. (laughs) He gives his son zero respect. (laughs) His son is in the fucking CIA. Sorry. I don't know if we could swear on this podcast. He's a trained spy and he gets zero respect from his father who didn't even know that he was a spy. Yeah. He speaks Russian. Yeah, no, that that is it, it. It's kind of tricky, I think, because there's a little bit of uh, that journey already happened in the fourth Die Hard, mm-hmm. because that relationship with his daughter is also like a damaged relationship, and they have mm-hmm. to like rebuild. But it's, but a, a relationship between a father and a daughter. Oh, is yeah, very absolutely. much about like overprotection, whereas a relationship between a father and a son and needing his son's respect about defining who he is could have been. A really interesting facet of right uh, but but i mean in a way on on at first look on a superficial level you're like we're doing this story again where oh he has another strange child that he has to reconnect with mm. and of course yeah. it's clear that the, the people making this movie were not interested or mm. up to the task of, yeah of- it is the worst type of example of a film studio giving what they perceive the audience wants because it's really <laughs> who who but, would have thought they wanted any of <laughs> but you know what I mean because they think the audience wants Jack Mc, uh, uh, John McClane being loud and obnoxious and just senseless action and but at what being, point would they have thought Russia John McClane because that's be, what the audience because he can be xenophobic that way <laughs> but he's not he does, when he knocks that guy out do you think I understand what you said yeah that that was the one one xenophobic where I was just like oh. He's not trying to. You're stealing his car and beating him up. <laughs> and he, you're in his country. But this movie is... Brief explanation. 15-minute action sequence. Brief explanation. <laughs> and it's just... It's loud. It, it, it is all the worst parts of America. <laughs> but that's unintentionally. I think that that's... You, it's surely, at some point, it must be intentional. Oh, well, no. I think... Because I remember reading interviews with John Moore where... He seemed pretty proud of his approach, his take on the the franchise, where he was like, "We're gonna get rid of all the like all the silliness. We're gonna go back to like the hardcore action driven R rated." I was really stuff. hoping to find something in like my research of it that said like, you know, there were problems with the script rewrites from day one, that type of thing, and it was just like, it just happened. And I was like, no, I think this is. It feels like the movie that when I read that interview, I was like, oh, that doesn't sound good because he was. I guess it was as a response to. Uh, What's the previous one? Uh, Live free or die hard, right? That's which you could argue is like the silliest one as far as like comedic beats. There's yeah. like so many of them. It's got, and and well, I love it. Justin Long. Yeah, I, th- I think we should all put our cards on the table here and say we lose complete uh, <laughs> any kind of credibility in this discussion because at least Julio and I both love live free or die hard. hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I enjoy <laughs> it. It's you know. Die Hard is one of those trilogies that I'm not as gaga about as some people are. Oh, so really? um, it's like I'll go to bat for the Terminator trilogy and things like that. Mm-hmm. But Die Hard, I'm like, yeah, the first one's fucking great. It's 
Nothing came close mm. to touching the first one for me. That's the main the thing. The third one is amazing. I'm not saying it's not good. It's just... It's good. Yeah. It's good. I don't know about amazing. The second one is awful. Live Free or Die Hard, I saw when it came out, and I remember thinking, people raising a fuss about this are just getting their panties in a bunch for no reason. Yeah. And then when this came out, it just reinforced my stance on that movie even more <laughs> that I'm like, oh, you thought that was bad? <laughs> but, so, let, should we talk briefly about what makes a good Die Hard movie? Because John McClane in that first film became such a seminal character that the third movie was a completely different script called Simon Says that they rewrote to be a John McClane movie and they did that well. Whereas this film, it felt like someone's written some... Hacky Euro thriller. Well, the Steven Seagal so, quote I yeah, mean, was, was, was pretty accurate, right? And then they just like, oh, let's just sprinkle some John McClane this over was, the top of that. This was the only script that was specifically written as a Die Hard movie. So all the other ones were scripts that were differently. <laughs> and then they turned them into Die Hards. Yeah, like uh, Live Free or Die Hard was supposed to be. Uh, it was that plot. It was a movie that was about a terrorist attack that originally was in production. I can't remember what the name of it was, but. Um, it was originally in production in 2001 and then September 11th mm. happened so it just got shelved for a while mm. and they picked it back up for this so um, it, that makes me sad that this was the only one specifically written to be and that they did film. so badly I mean so it's what's key about a John McClane movie is he is a just a New York beat cop who is completely out of his league and just has to use his resources yeah resources but also like just sheer Belligerence and bloody mindedness, there and is walking a, on glass in yeah. bare feet. Too. Right, because at first you could fall into the trap of uh, just thinking of the first two and being like, "No, a Die Hard movie is about him being stuck in a very specific place." So you know, in the first one, he's stuck in that building. Mm-hmm. In the second one, he's stuck in the in the airport. And then, well, once you get to the third one. I guess you could try to push and say, well, he's kind of like trapped in that city where all the bombs are going off. But then once you get to the fourth one, there's, you know, okay, yeah. well, all, all hell breaks loose everywhere. There's no, that, there's not but that. But at least the fourth one had, uh, it was him against the tech world, which he had no way of accessing, no way of controlling. So, it, and it was him, you know, trying to come to terms with his family. Like his, his relationship with his daughter felt like a credible McLean relationship. And that's what this film lacked. There is no way that John McClane's son would ever be a CIA asset. Like, I, I was, when I first saw the film, I thought this would have been more interesting if he had been an actual drug dealer right. who was in Russia and got caught, and John McClane is going to try and rescue his son and turn him back onto the straight and narrow. Like, I could imagine John McClane's son becoming an international drug dealer more than I could believe him becoming a and CIA it, agent. And it just, you know, John McClane's like fucking all omnipotent MacGyver like <laughs> in this movie. And is he though? What does he do? He, he slips a laundromat guy <laughs> some money like and steals he, some car keys. Those are his MacGyver moments. But 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 also he he can tell when something's wrong. He's okay, yeah. you know he's so he's yeah, ahead of the, the game. Oracle from the <laughs> but like the action sequences are just offensively over the top. Yeah. Like it's just but, so much for no reason. Right, but at the same so time, much you for so little. Right, because the 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 action scenes in Live Free or Die Hard are pretty over the top, and I love them. Mm-hmm. You know when he drives his car into the helicopter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that is insane, it, and that could have happened in this movie, but in this movie, it just doesn't work because. Because I think one of the big things that's Wasn't missing... was it like a jet, not a helicopter? 
Or maybe it was that. Something that's flying. Yeah. 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 And just to like simplify how that movie kind of got the whole John McClane Mm -hmm. character even a little bit better, you can do something that stupid if you pay it off with him being a dickhead. (laughs) Yeah. His reason for everything in this is I'm on vacation. And I'm not (laughs) kidding. That's his reason (laughs) for fucking everything. In that one, it's that great line because. Uh, Justin Long says you flew that your car into that plane. <laughs> I was out of bullets. <laughs> yeah. That's great. And I think you're onto something there. Where in in all four previous films, John McClane is not aware of his own kind of superhero. It's like genre blindness. He doesn't know that he's an action star. Right. He thinks he's just a beat cop, like trying to get through this. Whereas this film, he's clearly aware it's like i'm gonna kill all the scumbags and yeah he, that's what we do we're mcclain's yeah. it's like he finally got around to watching the first four <laughs> diehards in this one he's like oh man i am a badass i am pretty yeah. awesome i'm gonna go to russia and take care of this and and yeah so that lack of that that self-awareness was just and the it just made him not be John McClane. Well, there's that, but it's also, uh, and it's funny, this comes, uh, this will be our episode after we did That Thing You Do, which That Thing You Do was one of the most joyous movies that we've watched. Mm. And this one is so joyless. And Mm. it's, and that is, that doesn't trick. I don't know what you're talking about, but I found out the bad guy caused Chernobyl. I was like, yes. (laughs) Well, there's, you know, there's, not only is it that he doesn't have as many zingers as he does in in the previous movies, but he looks... It's so it, cold. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He looks tired mm. and like he's not enjoying himself. But it and is shot other... like a, a Bourne movie. Like you were right. saying in the early the sequence that it yeah. looks fantastic, right? But it doesn't look like a diehard movie. No. It looks like a Euro thriller, contemporary, you know, everything. And the action didn't relate because it wasn't John McClane action. They're trying to make it R-rated. They're trying to make it big. But it's the action sequences in all the diehards, including number four, were about character. You know, the, the car into the helicopter is like a John McClane moment. And my favorite bit in the fourth one is where Timothy Oliphant has him with the gun in his chest and he shoots himself. it through himself. There is nothing more John McClane than that. And that is in the yeah. fourth and to some people's mind, the worst, but you know, no, 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 no. Movies. The closest it gets in this movie actually is towards the end when he drives the car yeah. out of the helicopter to mm. drag the helicopter he down. Has, he says yippee Th- That too, yeah. It, and, it, and it felt like that was actually a genuine John McClane moment, but the film had fucked up so many times before that that you just didn't give a shit. But it felt like, oh yeah, that's ingenuity, and that's him doing this, not because, oh, I'm a Superman that can do it, but more like, okay, well, this is what I can do, and he just just goes for it. Uh, Because it's what I was so... I've been so impressed with the last two installments of the uh, Mission Impossible franchise, also new director each... That's true. Installment, That's true. Um, is that in the last two, Ethan Hunt has looked scared. Like before he does something crazy, he looks genuinely terrified. And that is important. And so. Yeah, the last one in particular, you can actually feel like he might not make it in this in this particular sequence. Uh, yeah, there's nothing there's nothing like that here. Here it's more like uh it, it feels actually kind of contradictory, maybe, that I like that they have an old John McClane, and I don't like the fact that the old John McClane is not as funny mm. and not as, as, you know... He's not at all about energetic. self-preservation. He's yeah. just about being the hero. And like Right. And often he has the biggest gun. It's not like him, you know, I've got one bullet in my tiny little pistol that I've sticky taped to my back. It's not John McClane. It's not ingenuity. It's just like... I'm having fun shooting enormous machine guns. He allows his son to go walk into a, a gunfight strapped to the gills and grenades. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and you know, of course, we have to touch on the the big 
coupe de grass, where, as they say, when he jumps out and flips them off, and mm. that was just like. Uh, Even uh, yeah, the attempts at humor are just—they just don't work. <laughs> As someone who spent a life watching combat sports, pro wrestling, things of that nature, seeing how a, a proper conflict story can build to that moment mm. where you tell someone to fuck off, mm. give them the finger, yeah. something like that. Seeing that played for laughs and to know that movie did not earn that moment whatsoever—it's <laughs> just so silly. And it's one of those things. It's like um, God damn that. Uh, the Alamo mm. they did back at the turn of the millennium with Billy Bob Thornton mm. uh-huh. at the end where he like where they reimagine how Davy Crockett got killed. Have you ever seen it? I haven't seen it. Okay, but... so they basically reimagine how Davy Crockett got killed and the Spanish Armada just like tie him down and start stabbing him and he just is like screaming at him while it's going on and it's one of those things you have to watch through your fingers because it's such bad film. <laughs> it's just like, oh God, <laughs> this movie did not deserve <laughs> this. But yeah, like and that doesn't even feel like a John McClane thing that he would flip him off. It seemed more like he would just kind of yeah. like freak out that he might die. Right. I, that, but his son's right next to him might die too. So. Yeah. But there, there were moments in here. Like I thought in the early car chase, as much as it, I wasn't like emotionally involved in the car chase, when Lucy's calling and he's trying to juggle the phone call while save his son, that felt like a diehard movie. There were moments in there where I felt like with without any more budget and just like someone doing a... a you didn't could have done the exact same scenes, but just written it better. Sorry, Skip Woods yeah. and John Moore, but it could have been a perfectly acceptable entry into the Die Hard. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely it's kind of overblown. It's it's funny because that sequence with the with the cars at the very beginning, the first big major set piece, that just goes on for so long that I actually I went in and out of it. Like I remember, I like it started and then I got bored and I kind of like. <laughs> You know, I started thinking about something else. Then I came back to it, and then and then the the phone call happened, and then I was in it for a little longer, and then I wandered off again, and then I came back. It was like, it, it went on forever, and it was. It, but every time I came back, it was still the same. It was just him driving in, you know, cars crashing and all the stuff. And uh, so, really, the only interesting thing that happens there is the 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 phone call. Yeah. Yeah. And we and and like because it's also setting itself up to be like this thriller, we have no idea why anyone in the film is doing anything that they're Dude, doing. No fucking joke. <laughs> it's, like, it's not until like when it's easily halfway through the movie when Sam Worthington 2.0 explains what's going on. Like he says, you know, this is why everyone wants this file, and that's shit. You know, like Mission Impossible movies have done excellently. You can have this crazy. Um, Fucking Dark Knight, mm-hmm. brilliantly. You can have these crazy action sequences. You just have to really quickly explain why it's all mm-hmm. going on. Yeah, but, but you know, maybe there is a problem with putting John McClane in a spy movie because yeah. all the other movies, the, all the other Die Hard movies, you know what's going on. It's all pretty simple. Even when you have reversals and surprises mm-hmm. and whatever, even the first one, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it's just they just—they're not really terrorists. They just want to steal the money. Yeah. Yeah. But but the entire time you're following, you understand why they're doing what they're mm-hmm. doing. And when it's the revealed third that one, they have. They have two debriefing right. scenes. Like the first one is they find him and they to put the sign on him in Harlem and he's like got a headache. He's asking for aspirin while they're trying yeah. to debrief him. And then later on when they find the first bomb and they're sh- like mixing it and showing the, the that explosive. Is his brother you know, they, they, they explain, they orient you in the movie, even though you don't know what, um, it's not Hans Gruber, but Gruber, Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy Irons, Jeremy Gruber. Gruber. Um, oh, <laughs> but they know... Like, even though we don't know as an audience what his plan is and why he's doing it, we know enough that we're invested in why John McClane is doing what he's right. doing. Here, it's just it's pretty nonsensical because I don't know what exactly he's expecting to do 
Like he flies off to Russia. Do you think they take a vacation? (laughs) (laughs) It would have been more interesting if he had like a CIA handler. Right. Like as the CIA like needed to get John McClane to talk to his son as the only person the Russians would let talk to him that try and get him a message a lot more sense you know th- then and then john mcclain starts fucking everything right up, you know like but instead he just kind of shows up he has no plan and he he kind mm. of lucks out that there the explosion happens and then suddenly mm. he can actually do something yeah. because otherwise what, what was his he's plan? not he's not involved he's, he's not driving the plot of the movie until the ballroom essentially halfway through the movie almost does he start actually there is right after the ballroom. It's like I think that basically when uh, when his son says, "I don't know what else to do," mm. that's the moment that okay, that's like the John low McLean. point of the movie. That's like two thirds <laughs> exactly. of the way through because it's not his movie until yeah. then. That whole opening and mm. the um, the courtroom scene mm. is so well built to the explosion because they do have all those big uh, uh, scenic shots mm. and everything, and then it's this feeling of tension, and then the big bomb goes off, and then it just becomes the fucking you know Bruce Willis mm. show. Um, but what you can say about this movie, if it is in any way to be derived, uh, as a positive, is that it never falls off the tracks because it never gets on its beginning. Because <laughs> there's nothing worse than a movie that like is on the right path and then completely goes off the tracks. So right, this is just a bad movie. Right, this is like I, I guess my, this is where I, I should tell you how I watched it because like you said, like uh, I watched it the marathon. We we're talking about that earlier. Uh, so I watched this after watching the first four diehards back to back. And this is such a downer. Can you imagine <laughs> like you're watching them and regardless of your feelings for, you know, there's something you like better than others. Uh, it's still like the quality is consistent. Mm-hmm. You're watching yeah. good action movies that keep you interested mm-hmm. and, and they have layers and they're complex and there's more to them than just the action sequences mm. and then you get to this one and it's like what happened mm. <laughs> and it, like you said it's the one that was written for the franchise which just seems yeah it's bananas it's, it's crazy so, so that that feeling of like it never got on the tracks yeah. it's kind of like how i felt i'm like okay any minute now we're gonna yeah. get into the the I real wa- die harding and it didn't happen i watched this film with my son and he was five days old. It was the, his first trip to the cinema. He couldn't defend himself. <laughs> he couldn't say no. I think the second film he watched was Philomena and then uh, World War Z. So it got oh, better. Oh, okay. Guys, you know. considerably better. <laughs> he's, he's on the roller coaster. Uh, yeah, it's just so much lazy writing. And, you know, it's the type of thing where I don't mean to be, like, a, a nerd about it. But, like, there's so many things you can just pick apart. Um the bad guys, they weave in and out of speaking English and Russian. Um, when they go to Chernobyl, neither of the McLeans have any hazmat suits on, despite like... For, for some reason, everybody else does. Yeah, so. it's just, it, there's things like that you can pick apart, which is just uh, either laziness or contempt for your audience, which they should definitely have, because with how much money this made, they can just say, fuck you, we'll do this, and you'll pay for it. Yeah, they but, basically put Die Hard in the title of a movie, put, John, put Bruce Willis in it, and said, we're going to make $300 million, and that's... As much as we care about this franchise, yeah, it, I mean, it's not. I, I got sucker into it. Like, I paid to yeah, watch it. I, I, I could have watched it for free, but mm-hmm. I paid to watch it because, I, you know, I was I was sure that it was going to be worth watching. Uh, speaking of Chernobyl, like that that big reveal is pretty silly. <laughs> uh, I hope you mean incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that having gone this far in my life, three years, three and a half years removed, not knowing that, <laughs> you do not understand the childlike glee that came over me while we were watching this. I was like, he caused Chernobyl. 
Um, yeah, no. It's... But that's another missed opportunity. John McClane should be terrified of radiation because he should not have like mm-hmm. any rational thought in his mind about it. Because he right. there's no science. It's just like Chernobyl. We are not going there. Right, you know? right. Courtney <laughs> doesn't have a thought in his head. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, so I I will Courtney. No I will no. I will bash. Sam Worthington as much as the next man, but have any of you seen the um, Aussie film Getting Square? Nope. Okay. I if, if we have I love a this. I love section, this. I love this because it's like speaking of Jay Corney, Sam Worthington is <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, no, of Sam Worthington 2.0, but Australia is like exporting Hollywood leading men at the moment. You know, Hemsworths, uh-huh. Worthingtons, Cornies, and Getting Square is like an Aussie version of Ocean's Eleven, like an Aussie working class version of Ocean's Eleven. And it is so fantastic. And Sam Worthington's like quiet taciturn presence, like works super well in it. It is so fantastic. I recommend everyone watch this. My favorite Aussie film. I don't hate Sam Worthington. (laughs) I don't hate him either. Like I said, we used to call him the charismatic enigma, but (laughs) (laughs) much like Jai Courtney, I'm not in a place where I can just say he sucks, but it's like, in especially Sam Worthington's case, his public persona and how much of a fucking cockhead he acted like (laughs) doesn't help him at all. And then Jai Courtney, it's just... He looks like him, and they want him for the same thing. So that's where the immediate comparisons are going. And I don't understand, like either the directors aren't pushing him to act, or I don't understand what they see in him. So, so casting him. Do you not like him in uh, Terminator Genesis? I don't. I've yet to see anything Jai Courtney's in where I'm where I understand why he is leading these major. Franchises really weird thing, and this also comes again from me being a lifelong pro wrestling fan, where. Um, much like in the WWE, uh, they seem to do this thing where they just point at someone and they see and they go, "That we're just going to go with that and see what happens." And despite the fact that you know Hollywood, Sam Worthington was kind of the beginning of this for the past ten years, they were on this big manhunt to find the next big action star, and then they went from him. And you know, Jai Courtney's been the most recent, and there's plenty of viable options right under their nose. And then they went with the nostalgia mm. route a couple of years ago where they were trying to get like Arnold and Sly mm. to do these movies and stuff. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I don't know how you feel about the Expendables. I thought the first two were fun. They were... I've only seen the second one and I had a good time watching it. Oh my God, the second one's incredible. Mm. With JCVD as the bad guy. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. I mean, you have a guy like uh, Chris Hemsworth who's clearly capable and... Also Aussie. Yeah. <laughs> And his brother, Liam. Where's the and his other brother, Luke. <laughs> Where's the compound in Australia? Where are they, where are they out? So and the, Tom Hardy being from the UK. Is, just, I'm just saying that it, I don't know why, but Hollywood does not seem to be looking to American actors to cast like strong leading men roles. Like at the moment, the only one I can think of is like Chris Pine. Uh, trying to think. I mean, I was, gonna, I was just mm-hmm. joke about Robert De Niro. Like, <laughs> well, no, you got Robert Downey Jr. Like, you look at oh Chris Evans, Chris be, Evans, you, Chris Evans. The other one, like, you look at those movies, but Robert Downey Jr. is in his fifties. Like, yeah. he's not like how old is Will Smith? I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, to pay credence to what you said, it's definitely been an infatuation with outside talent. With, you know, good cause when you have guys like Chris Hemsworth and Tom Hardy who fucking rock whatever the hell mm. they do. So it's, you know, a lot of, well, this tastes good, so I want to get more of this. Mm. Um, I will watch Tom Hardy do anything. And I love The Revenant, but mainly because of Tom Hardy. Have you, you haven't seen The Revenant yet, right? Not yet. Um, 
Stone Cold Steve Austin did a review on his podcast <laughs> of the movie where it's him just basically explaining the plot, and it is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, the movie the movie will not live up to that. Yeah. <laughs> that it using like wrestling? Terms. So he talks about like the mama bear working a comeback on Leo. <laughs> it's amazing. <That's> kind of... <laughs> so since we were able to get all this, this has made this whole experience worthwhile. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. It, it seems like with how bad this was received and um, you know, with the whole way we look at the Rotten Tomatoes judging is mm. subjective, but at the same time, this was just a flat out bad movie. Mm. But it, but it made a lot of money, which is the, the concerning Grown part. And Fox money. is searching for franchises. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I think Bruce Willis is going to be the, the, if they get Bruce Willis back, they'll make another one. That is okay. That was something that I wanted to talk about because really, so much has been made of uh, Bruce Willis being the keeper of the franchise. I remember reading like way back when they were doing Live Free or Die Hard that he was just, you know, a hard ass about like what happens and what doesn't happen in the movie because he had to protect well, the character. Surely he did not give two shits about exactly. the script. I for cannot this film. believe that, you know, for somebody who boasts to be the guy that mm -hmm. really cares about this franchise mm -hmm. that he let this movie happen. And so I would like to hear like from him and just know like, okay, what happened? Do you just give up, yeah. or or do you really have a very? Is your are your thoughts on John McClane completely different from ours mm. and you know everybody else mm. in the world apparently? Because if there's is, there were some great another... moments in there when Jai Courtney says you're such a fuck up and he said I'm still your father like that was a John McClane. Mm. Right, Nine. but here's the thing, like, I mean, even if it's not the hottest superstar right now, I think Bruce Willis can make or break a Die Hard movie. Like, he could just say, no, this is, this doesn't happen, and that's it, right? So, but he still, he let this movie happen, and that makes me weary of another Die Hard, because if it's just going to be the same thing, where, like, he just, he's still the keeper of the franchise, and this is a, a good day to Die Hard. It's his vision of what the franchise should be at this point. Yeah. Why would I even yeah. want to try another yeah. one? You know, it's different. If you tell me that, oh, well, he he wanted the movie to be different, but, you know, a lot of things happened and it just didn't happen. Then I'll be like, okay, let's give it one more shot and let's finish the franchise in a, a, a positive way. Let's have like a It's going to be one of those franchises note. that's going to be hard to reboot without him because it is a character-based franchise. It's the same way that I can't imagine them rebooting Indiana Jones because right. it is about the character it's not about in i could perfectly imagine mission impossible moving on without tom cruise or tom cruise taking on like the the handler mm -hmm. role in the in those films because it's about a team it's about the mission it's not necessarily it's not they're not called ethan hunts right you know yeah um well even just as far as bruce willis goes kind of we briefly touched on this while watching i mean less than a year prior he was in looper mm -hmm. so it's like <laughs> As a self-respecting actor, mm. not just someone as a property <laughs> of the film, but yeah, I, I agree with you. And like, Sin City, he was fantastic yeah, he, in he as was well. Great. I know that was probably a good ten years before uh, this film, but but yeah, like you're saying, you know, it, it, you look to Creed, for example, you can't reboot a franchise that's based around a character without at least having them involved in some ways. I mean, I think you get a good team behind it, and then you can make the movie where it's. Bruce Willis, Jai Corney, and uh, Ramona Flowers. 
I would watch the movie where they're like, you know, the kid's a CIA agent and she's just like a resourceful, smart woman. And Bruce Willis is like the grandfather that's not up to the task anymore, but he can still offer advice and maybe get involved with some of the shenanigans. But it's like... Boy, he was he was great in, in Red where they acknowledged that he's his old. age. That was... They could make a Die Hard movie along the line of Red. What is... Ramona Flower's name, I feel bad. Mary Elizabeth Mary Winston. Okay. Yes, there you go. Thank you. Because, yeah, she's great. <laughs> Do you, you guys just pretend that you, you nodded and said, yeah, you got in there first? <laughs> yeah, no, I... <laughs> I dude, I've I've liked her before she was Ramona Flowers. I've mm-hmm. liked her since Sky High. Mm-hmm. But if you do something, she was great in Ten Cloverfield Lane yes, as well. Too. I, I've given yeah. my spiel on here. Some actors will be so iconic in one role <laughs> for the rest of their career. They're that person. Um, all right. Well, we've spent far more time talking about <laughs> Good Day Die Hard than any self-respecting person should. Yes. We do it so you don't have to. <laughs> Chaz, uh, tell us where you are. Tell us what you do. Uh, so I, I'm here in Austin cause I'm, uh, here for the film festival. I write screenplays, but if I, if I'm permitted a plug, I also have a podcast. All the plugs you want. So, uh, so apart from go and find getting square, the amazing Aussie film, uh, also if you like screenwriting podcasts, myself and fellow, uh, filmmaker Stu Willis, we make the draft zero screenwriting podcast. And where can we find that? On iTunes? And uh, wherever you download, I think podcasts. if you yeah, I think if you search Draft Zero on iTunes, yeah. it, it I mean look wwwdraft zero the word not the numeral dot com. <laughs> Why so complicated? Yeah, uh, yeah. That's I've I've listened to most of their episodes. I can vouch for their awesomeness. Mm. If you think that he had like interesting things to say about uh, a good day to their heart, you should <laughs> you should hear him say interesting things about actually good movies <laughs> um do you have a plug alex um i don't think so for this week i didn't come prepared shame for you i do have a plug i told you we've done five this is our fifth in a month i'm plugged out man. <laughs> running out of things in your life to like you know you can plug whatever it is you work like hey don't be uh don't give out your personal information <laughs> don't don't ask me about my business <laughs> uh i have a plug it's an awesome podcast uh, called Found, and I just started it. It doesn't have that many episodes uh, so far. I've listened to the first three or four, but it's uh, apparently they they have a website and they have a magazine. They've been doing this thing for like 15 years, I think, but just now started the podcast. And it's uh, so the idea is that people find like little pieces of paper, little things, photographs or whatever, like in the world you find stuff that would be like litter or trash but you find them and you like save them and there's a story behind them and so they so people send all the stuff that they find they send them to these guys and and they try to get to the bottom of like what happened so it could be like a shopping list or a letter or a a draft for an application or a mission statement for your dreams or whatever and uh and so sometimes they follow the leads and they come up with like a great story they find a great story so for example uh there's one episode like i think it's the first episode where they talk about this letter that it was like a draft somebody like you know kind of trying to figure out the letter they were going to send about how they were sending it to a producer in hollywood pitching themselves as the asian oprah like they're like you know oprah's great i am great i'm ready you know i could be like a talk show host or whatever so they 
they track down first they talk to people they're like what do you think of this letter do you think this guy had the goods they talk to like a, an asian actor like you know back in the day when this guy wrote this letter what was it like for an asian actor you know do you think that he he was on the right track was he delusional and then eventually they work their way to like finding the guy and they talk to him and now he's just like a dentist so obviously he didn't achieve his dreams but when they talked to him he was actually in the business for like a couple years and uh and while he doesn't say it, when the guy's doing the research, he finds out that as a dentist, he's kind of a superstar. He's mm -hmm. he's mm -hmm. a guy that does uh, root canals like uh, at a very affordable price for people that can't normally afford root canals on normal dentists. So he's kind of achieved stardom in the dentist field, mm -hmm. the, the stardom that he was originally seeking as a talk show host when he wanted to be the Asian Oprah. And uh, it's, it's all like done in like 30 or 40 minutes, but the way that they put all this together like thematically is like, amazing you like you listen to it and i was like wow that's really cool uh there's another episode where the found element is a baby it's about this guy that's going like he's on the subway and he notices a baby like that's being abandoned and so he picks him up and then he calls the authorities and there's a whole thing like a chain of events that happens and then by the end of the episode him and his boyfriend had adopted the kid Holy and have like it's it's an amazing story like i was driving and i was kind of like tearing up because it was just so <laughs> so awesome uh so every episode has its own thing you know and it's uh uh they've yet i've, I've listened to like three or four and i've yet been disappointed by the thing mm -hmm. and apparently there's a musical too that they plug mm -hmm. at the end of every episode like it's called found the musical mm -hmm. and uh uh I, I mean right now it's only playing or it's it's supposed to open in i think philadelphia in november and uh, so it's like a small production and I don't know if we'll ever like mm. do the rounds to where like we could watch it here in Austin, but uh, I am really happy. Mm. Somebody that I follow on Twitter, like mentioned it and then mm. I started listening to it and I'm like this, mm. I am plugging this. Uh, on Have our... you, can I lower the tone? Have you guys listened to my dad wrote a porno? I haven't. It's the greatest podcast ever, like <laughs> far and away. As someone who has his own podcast and is guesting on another podcast. <laughs> the... <laughs> It is so fantastic. It's this guy whose dad, who's been in sales his whole life and is retired, is now like doing self-published e-book erotica nice. set in the world of like sales of pots and pans and how this woman <laughs> like uses like sex to get on in business. But they go from like this guy clearly has this guy's dad. So he's reading out his own dad. And like, sometimes you can hear him like almost be physically ill as he's like basically <laughs> going like, this is my father's sexual fantasies. So, so is it over? Is, is I mean, has he finished the, the no, because book? They, there's like five of the books. So they're, oh, but they're so halfway he has through. published some Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. They're, they're online. You can buy it, the book for like two bucks. Um, awesome. um, but it's the great thing is, it's this guy reading the book and he's got his two friends. They're listening to him and they are so funny and so witty and like, my I kept telling my wife to listen to this and I was really worried that she would like start listening to it and go I'm married to a perverted <laughs> man but she also finds it hysterically funny so oh, that's that's <laughs> awesome nice. okay so found and my dad wrote a porno I'm gonna put links to that on our web page and well draft zero of course <laughs> it just goes uh, yeah and on that I did forget I did want to plug uh, the HBO boxing podcast just did a podcast special it's the first time they've ever done this on one particular fight. Uh, it was called Still Standing. It talked about the Bernard Hopkins-Felix Trinidad fight from 2001 that was uh, supposed to take place the weekend, uh, I believe the original date was supposed to be September 16th, September 15th 
of 2001. And then September 11th happened. It was in Madison Square Garden. So it's the story of it was the first big sporting event in New York City following that. And Also, it still went ahead. Uh, not that weekend. They rescheduled okay. it for two weeks later, but it was still the first big mm. sporting event that happened. And it, it's basically just a retelling from everyone that was there of what the atmosphere was, what mm. the tone was, what it was like during that time. And it was also a very um, pivotal fight in the history of boxing because Bernard Hopkins was kind of um, a good hand. Uh, but in winning that fight, he became a first ballot Hall of mm. Famer. And it's basically with stories like that, you can just give a, like a half effort and it's interesting. But when you go the full mile and put together something really good, and so it's about 45 minutes long. So even if you don't like boxing, check it out. Um, HBO Boxing Podcast, and we will plug that. But um, This section, this plug section on this episode had everything. Found babies, <laughs> pornos, 9-11. <laughs> and it's all because of a good day to die hard. <laughs> so appropriate. All right. Well, Chaz, we really do appreciate you coming on. Um, um, I appreciate your effort too, man. <laughs> Traveling literally across the globe, and now it was all for this. Yeah. <laughs> Next time we'll go to Australia and we'll yeah. do American Hustle. Yeah. <laughs> Alex is like, it's not even worth going to Australia to watch America. Well, enjoy your stay. Best of luck at the film festival. Um, I do believe that wraps everything up. Anything to add, fellas? Nope. I think I think this is it. We've. We're finished. We're done. <laughs> we're finished. Uh, but that will do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. That summer of 
Yes. Far and away. Okay. Yeah, I well, I've said it before. I watched it with my family, so I I had it. It was fun. It was gonna be fun no matter what. But no, yeah, Jai Corny is in it, and you know, as Captain. But he's in a role that if you deleted his every line from the movie, you wouldn't actually realize that he was missing. Right, but not having been deleted, he doesn't he doesn't bring the movie to a screeching halt or anything. You know, he's he's perfectly acceptable in a role that's completely unnecessary.